Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to the Voices in Leadership, a series focusing on the nexus of science and leadership to create positive change in public health. I am Betty Johnson and I have the privilege to direct this program and introduce today's guest. Elizabeth Nabel has served as president of Brigham Health, comprised of Brigham and Women's Hospital, Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital, and Brigham and Women's Physician Organization since 2010. A distinguished biomedical researcher and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Nabel brings a unique perspective to healthcare based on her experience as a physician research scientist, academic medicine leader, and wellness advocate. In 2015, she was appointed Chief Health and Medical Advisor to the National Football League. In this newly created advisory role, she provides input to the NFL's medical, health, and scientific efforts. Her leadership hallmarks include greater interdisciplinary and cross-industry collaborations, patient-inclusive care, and a globally reaching vision, just to name a few. Dr. Nabel established pioneering programs in genomics, stem cells. She also founded the Global Alliance for Chronic Diseases and launched the Red Dress Heart Truth campaign. Dr. Nabel has been honored by being elected to the American Academy of the Arts and Sciences, the National Academy of Medicine, the Association of American Physicians, the American Society of Clinical Investigation, and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Before I turn this session over to today's interviewer, Dr. Shees Ja, KT Lai Professor of International Health and Director of the Harvard Global Health Institute here at the school, please join me as we welcome Dr. Elizabeth Nabel to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. Thank you. So Betsy, thank you for being here. Um, we're really My delighted. Pleasure. So I want to start off um, by asking you to reflect a little bit on the current leadership role you have. You've had a whole series of them, as, as Betty said, from your leadership at NHLBI to obviously now running a major academic enterprise. Um, what's different about this role? And, and how did your previous experiences prepare you uh, to do what you do today? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, maybe I'll step back a bit. Um, I grew up as a physician scientist trained here uh, in the Harvard system. I did my medical and my cardiology training at Brigham Women's Hospital about 30 years ago. Uh, and that training uh, instilled in me a firm set of academic values. Uh, and those are the values that I have carried with me throughout my professional career. Uh, first as a faculty member at the University of Michigan uh, and then as a leader at the uh, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. I always knew I wanted to return back to lead an outstanding academic medical center. When I was at uh, the NIH, I, I was <clears throat> extraordinarily privileged to lead an outstanding uh, institute, but also to spend a lot of time on the Hill with members of Congress advocating for biomedical research. And I came to appreciate the fact that there was tremendous bilateral support mm. uh, for academic medical centers and biomedical research in this country. 
And I could also see, this was in the late 2000s, that the winds of Obamacare were starting to blow. And that with significant changes in healthcare financing, academic medical centers in particular were going to be very challenged. Mm -hmm. And yet I also felt that academic medical centers are really the jewel in the crown in this country. Yeah. We, the academic medical centers are the training ground for the next generation of physicians and scientists that go on to populate not only public health schools and medical schools and, and hospitals, but pharma, biotech, venture, uh, yeah. you know, the whole thing. The whole thing. Uh, so uh, I, I really looked for an opportunity that would allow me to lead an outstanding academic medical center through what would be a very turbulent time. Yeah. I couldn't define how turbulent it would be at the at the time, but uh, that was really my goal. And uh, obviously, I had a lot of uh, emotional fondness uh, for the Brigham because of my prior experience here. So I've been delighted to be back in Boston and to be part of the Harvard ecosystem and to be part of the Partners Healthcare System and leading uh, Brigham Health. It is a turbulent time. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And I don't think, as a leader, uh, you can aspire to a leadership role, but you really never know the challenges yeah. and the struggles until you're actually in that role. Yeah. So tell me what has surprised you in this role. I mean, so you came in in 2010, right around the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Um, we could predict some things about what was going to happen in the yeah. next, but what have been some of the surprises? Yeah. I don't think any of us could anticipate how difficult the healthcare financing mm -hmm. was going to be. Mm -hmm. And and how the healthcare financing would conflict with our intrinsic values about wanting to care for patients. Mm. So I, I think for those of us who are physician scientists who lead healthcare organizations, uh, our understanding of ourselves is as a physician. Yeah. Uh, and and that desire to care for individuals is very, very strong. Yeah. And now we're in a situation where we're having to make tough choices mm -hmm. about how we allocate monies across that care model. Yeah. And that those challenges often put us in conflict with our desires, our goals as an individual and, mm -hmm. and what we want to do around care opportunities for people. Yeah, so let me build on that. And, and one of the things I hear from colleagues at academic medical centers, really leaders in academic medical centers, is the fact that you know one of the, the, the incredible things that AMCs offer is that we take care of the sickest patients, mm -hmm. the most complicated, the ones that can't really get care yes. elsewhere. Do you think we figured out how to ensure that we have adequate resources, that we fund institutions like academic medical centers in a way that allows them to do that? Because there is no obvious business model for taking no. care of somebody no. who's incredibly sick, incredibly complicated, no. No. but somebody has to do that job. You're, you're absolutely right. So if we look across the healthcare landscape in the United States, there's yep. been tremendous consolidation yep. uh, going on in, into uh, you know larger and larger health systems. Academic medical centers make up about 5% of hospitals in this country. Yeah. So clearly, much of the healthcare policy that's going on is directed to non-academic centers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a mixture of for-profit and not-for-profit not centers. Yeah. Academic health centers historically have had four missions. We want to take exceptional care of our patients. Yep. We want to do cutting-edge research. We want to train the next generation. And we want to serve our communities yeah. locally and globally. And for us at the Brigham, we take service to the community 
very, very uh, uh, seriously. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we right now, uh, as, as a case study, I've spent two, two hours this morning understanding and trying to figure out how we are going to comprise our Medicaid ACO. Mm. So as you may or may not know, in the state of Massachusetts, we are now moving to have MassHealth, which is our state Medicaid program, be entirely an ACO. Mm -hmm. And starting in January, uh, there are, I think, four or five pilots uh, in the state, pilot ACOs, and Partners Healthcare, Brigham Women's Hospital, is one of those pilot ACOs. Yeah. So how, how are we gonna manage that ACO? Yeah. How are we gonna work with, with our partners, Mass General, in managing it? How are we gonna work with our partners, BMC, mm -hmm. Boston Medical Center, who has their own ACO, but we manage a number of patients mm -hmm. uh, ac across the, the city. And, and that's a real challenge. So, uh, and just for people who don't know, I mean, basically fundamentally with an ACO, you are now accountable for the, all of the costs yes. and all the health that's outcomes right. for that population. So what, what new skills or, or what, I'm not sure if they have to be new, but what skill sets do you need to negotiate this landscape, to be yeah. working so closely with yeah. Boston Medical Center, which is not yeah. part of partners, right? That's and right. at times competitive right. with partners. Yeah. So how do you do that? Yeah. yeah. So it, it, I think it goes back to that fundamental identity of being a physician. Yeah. And, and that identity is to work collaboratively, mm -hmm. to work across the aisle, mm -hmm. to work for the betterment or the greater good of our patients. Yeah. So what does that lead us to do? Uh, well, f well, first of all, with our physician colleagues, figure out what's the best care model. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, we, we are working out a care model where we will embrace the top 10% of individuals with the, the, who are the sickest in, in our Medicaid population mm. account for about 75% of the expense. Yeah. And so we will embrace that top 10% with all sorts of um, health providers. Yep. So it, it's not the primary care physician. Yeah. It's, it's the specialist around HIV, Hep C. It's the specialist around sickle cell hemophilia. Um, it's the advanced care providers that train nurses. It's mm -hmm. behavioral therapists. It's pharmacists. It's social workers. And it's paying attention to social determinants. Yeah. So it's really reconceptualizing the whole thing. It, it, it really is. Yeah. And so once we build those care models, then we can reach out to BMC as our partner. Yeah. I mean, we have to be partners in, in delivering care. We yeah. reach out and say, how, how can we share our care models? How can we share best practices? Yeah. And furthermore, when your patient who belongs to your ACO comes to our emergency room, how can we approach your care team and say, how can we coordinate the care and vice versa? Yeah. And then I also think from a, a political perspective, it's working with our state leaders, mm -hmm. our Secretary of Health and Human Services, our Commissioner of Public Health. It's working with our mayor, our, our governor, yeah. our, our, um, our House and Senate leaders to understand the various nuances of, of how we, we go about delivering care. So I, I look at leadership in this space as all about partnerships. Yeah. It's, it's building partnerships, building collaborations, building win-wins. Yeah. So in your role at NHLBI, as the head of mm -hmm. NHLBI, and now at Brigham, both of them have you interacting a lot with political leadership. Yes. Um, and really sounds like across the aisle, Republicans yes. and Democrats. 
do you think, and this is, this is a hard question in some ways because we've seen such contentious debates around mm -hmm. healthcare, do you think that biomedical research, funding for NIH, funding for academic medical mm -hmm. centers, does that remain a bipartisan issue still in your mind, or has that kind of gotten frayed a little bit yeah. with all the other political yeah. fighting yeah. that we've seen? So I'm the eternal optimist, and um, I, I'm going to say a resounding yes. Okay, good. Uh, and uh, I, I think back uh, to to when uh, I was at the NIH, and it's it certainly felt very bipartisan. Yeah. Uh, and. Um, uh, but I think going forward, it, it you know our political issues have become a little more contentious. Yep. But I, I really, you know, think seriously: is there anybody in this country who who doesn't want to see the medical advances? Yep. Is is there anybody in this country who really doesn't want to see our quality of life yep. improve? Yep. Is is there anybody who really doesn't believe in the principles of good public health? Yep. It, it, so we share those principles. It's a matter of, of how we get there yep. that, that may be contentious. Yep. And there, I think the real real solution, again, is finding that common ground. Mm -hmm. what, what are the areas in which we can agree? Yeah. And can we use that as the foundation, yeah. as the starting ground yeah. to move forward? And as we move forward, we may agree to disagree. But if we do so, can we continue to stick to that common ground? Yeah. And I think that that's really a lot of what we've lost mm. in our political dialogue over the past few years. A and do you think we can get it back? I hope so. Yeah. I do. I think with the right leadership we can. Yeah. And I, I think, again, you know, I think for particularly when you start out on your career, you think of leadership or leaders as someone who has been further along in their career. Mm -hmm. I think the idea, I think particularly for this audience, is we're all leaders. Yeah. And we're all in various stages of leadership throughout our life. Yeah. And we can certainly be leaders in our own realm, our own right right now. And and that's with continuing to, to work towards these common solutions. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's really how we bring together the groundswell to really address what appears to be a significant political divide. Yeah. Let's not let the senior leaders divide, yeah. squelch the, the, the wonderful activity that's occurring in other parts of our society. So what I hear, which I think is a very important point for students to understand, and, and for all of us really, is that leadership is not about making a decision and getting, getting everybody to follow. It is about no. partnership, it's about coalition right. building, it's about winning hearts and minds. Yes, that's right. And building coalitions that yes. last, even where you have areas of disagreement. That, that's right. And that's that is right. something we can all begin to work on. Yes. I want to talk to you about another leadership role you have, which is with the National Football League, mm -hmm. uh, as their chief health and medical mm -hmm. officer. Um, as you know, NFL has, has been undergoing some difficult times yes. um, with some health issues of former players. Mm -hmm. Um, when that opportunity came to you, you already had a, an mm -hmm. important job. How did you evaluate um, whether to take that on? I could yes. see a lot of opportunities. Yes. I could see some risks. Yes. How do you think about that as yes. as something to take on and whether it's worth doing and how do you make yeah. that decision? Yeah, yeah. The question is, could I have a positive impact? And I, I think back, I'm going to back into the answer if yep. you give, yeah, yeah. give me the space to Absolutely. do that. Absolutely. So I, I think back to my time at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And up to that point, I had been a physician scientist. I'm trained as a cardiologist. I had an R01 research laboratory doing fundamental molecular biology. Yep. When I became director of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, I was exposed to and I learned about the power of public health. Mm. And, and, and 
I drank the Kool-Aid. Yep. I really was a firm believer. And so I, I, through the Institute, I was able to engage in a number of projects that had a broad impact across multiple populations. One yep. was the Heart Truth Campaign, raising awareness about women and heart disease. Yep. Uh, and the other, we started a childhood obesity program mm. back around 2005, uh, when before it was really getting very trendy uh, yep. to do. So I had those two experiences under my belt of saying, you know, you can have an impact in a very broad mm. sense for populations around the country. Mm -hmm. So what, what happened was, first of all, I've been a longstanding football fan. Uh, I was on the faculty at the University of Michigan for right. 12 years. Right. Go Blue. It's hard, uh, it's it's, hard to it's, do it's that and to not avoid. love football yet. And, uh, you know, interestingly, as a cardiologist, uh, we needed to, ha a cardiologist was always present at the Michigan football games mm. when Coach Bo Beckler was the coach. He had, he had very advanced heart disease. This was publicly known. Uh, and um, the cardiologist uh, and attendants would sit at the 50-yard line about 20 rows up uh, and would be on call in case the coach had trouble. The cardiology fellow took care of the other 110,000 individuals in the stadium. So I started going to those games, uh, and I used to bring my son, mm. uh, who was in elementary school. He grew up thinking Michigan football was going with your mother who had her stethoscope in her satchel. Love but that. our family, big yeah. football. But we watched football. We watched Tom Brady play when he was a quarterback yeah. at, for the University of Michigan. We've been big Patriots fans ever since. Um, Minnesota Viking fans. I'm from Minnesota. So fast forward, uh, 2013, 2014. Um, I was approached by an individual who directed communications for the NFL. And I had worked with this individual when I was at the NIH. Mm. He actually headed the New York office of Ogilvy, mm. and we had engaged Ogilvy as our partner in developing the Heart Truth campaign. Nice. So Got we it. had worked together for a number of years, and that speaks to partnerships. Mm -hmm. uh, partnerships and networks that you build in one point in your life come back Absolutely. multiple times throughout your life. Yep. So this individual approached me and said, would you think about doing this? I was also approached by a neurosurgeon who had trained at the Brigham, who mm. was involved in the Head, Neck, and Spine Committee. Mm. I, I looked at it and um, I thought, if I can help them bring a scientific discipline, an evidence-based discipline, yep. to and establish a set of medical committees and infrastructures in the league, and provide advice from a distance. Mm -hmm. I provide advice, the league can take it or leave it. Yep. Um, and I saw the opportunity to have an impact long-term, long not just on player health and safety in the National Football League, yep. but there was clearly a downstream effect. Absolutely. NCAAs, football, NCAA sports, high school football, high school sports, not only for, for young women, but also for young men. Yep. Uh, and so that's how I, I've, I've approached it. Yep. And, um, uh, I've been pleased uh, because the league has been very respectful mm. uh, of, of my day job uh, and my advisor role, and I've been very respectful of them. We have been able to put into place a series of medical committees, mm. uh, general medicine, um, uh, musculoskeletal, head, neck, and spine, and we've recently announced a, a research uh, committee as well. Mm. Uh, the owners have been very receptive to messages around health and safety. In fact. Uh, the owners have just approved a $100 million mm. 
fund to support player health and safety. Much of that's going into bioengineering of equipment, but a good piece of it, 40 million, is going to go into player health and safety mm. around head traumatic uh, brain injury. Uh, so, uh, and I've seen an evolution mm -hmm. of the practice of medicine within the league as well. Mm. So that uh, within the league, there's an electronic record, mm -hmm. medical record, that all of the teams are required to use. Wow. That uh, uh, player health and safety data must be entered. Yeah. Player health and safety data is, is collected and analyzed by a third party and reports are delivered to the league, mm -hmm. the owners, and the medical staff on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are regular committee meetings to provide recommendations to the league to improve rule changes and other guidelines mm -hmm. for player health and safety. So that's probably more detail than you all want to know, but I, th I think the point is that if you can see a glimmer of hope of how you can have an impact, yep. and you can take a vision and drive it as long as you've got a supportive team to work with. Yep. You, you really can't have a broad impact on a population. And it also speaks to getting out of your standard comfort zone, right? Yes. I mean, you're a cardiologist, yes. um, you're running a hospital, uh, so you, one would think, well, those are the things you should be focused on. But yeah. the opportunity to have, and I agree with you, this is much more than just the NFL. Mm -hmm. Though the NFL is, of course, so important in our society, yes. but all the downstream effects, being able to see that and getting out of your comfort zone yeah. seems yeah. very important. I'm going to ask you, if, if you don't mind, a, a difficult question. Yeah. Um, and that is, uh, so I can't remember exactly when, but not that long ago, there was an article in the Boston Globe mm -hmm. um, that really raised questions about how do you do all of this? Mm -hmm. And are you really able to run a very important, complex academic mm -hmm. medical enterprise, mm -hmm. um, play this role with the NFL, mm -hmm. be on a board? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't the most flattering of articles. Yeah. And I, I want you to just for a second reflect on what it feels like when you wake up in the morning yeah. or whenever you first yeah. read that article. Yeah. You don't get three days to go process it yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. You probably have an incredibly packed day. Yeah. You still have to function. Yeah. How do you manage yeah. that? The feelings and sort yeah. of internal emotional stuff, yeah. but at the same time being engaged, yeah. being able to do your day yeah. job. Yeah. How do you manage that struggle? Yeah, yeah. It, it's tough. Uh, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, yeah. but I stand back again, and I think to me, leadership is about having an impact. Yeah, it's about being passionate about issues yeah. that are important to you. It's about having a vision and wanting to have an impact. And engaging in that life work means that not everybody's going to agree with you. Yeah, and you can choose either to be out there live outside that comfort zone, live outside that box, take a few risks, knowing that you're gonna get knocked down in the yeah. process, yeah. but you're gonna pick yourself back up and you're gonna keep going. Yeah. Or the other decision is, do you wanna just sit back, sit in your comfort zone, yeah. and play life safe? Yeah. And it's a fair decision. Yeah. We all make that decision. Yeah. And I've, I've chosen to get out there yeah. and try to have an impact. Yeah. And that's with the full knowledge that there's gonna be people who disagree yep. with what I choose to do yep. or how I do it. Yep. And that can play out on the public stage. Yeah. And I'll just have to deal with it. Yeah. And how, I mean, and when it does play out on such a public stage, yeah. and Boston's yeah. a big community, yeah. but it's actually a pretty yeah. small community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
advice for people about how to keep going? Yeah. Yeah. How do you manage this? Yeah. How do you pick yourself back yeah. up? Yeah. What do you do? You look deep inside yourself. And, you say, and fundamentally, to me, at the, the end of the day, it's always been about integrity mm -hmm. and character. Mm -hmm. As a physician, as a leader, am I doing what's my true north? Yep. Am I doing what's true to the values that my parents mm -hmm. led me to have, my true to the values that my medical training led me to have? Yep. Am I true to that vision of where I want to go? Yeah. And if I can answer that question, yes, then I pick myself up and I keep going. Hmm. Humbled. Yeah. Humbled. Yeah. But keep going. And I, I would say the other is your support team is very important. Mm. My husband is my best, my best friend yeah. and my sounding board. Yeah. And he's got an incredible sense of true north and an incredible sense of value. Yeah. And I, I ask him, is this the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Yeah. And if, if, he, if he says to me, no, Betsy, it's wrong, I'll change course. Yeah. So I, I trust him. I also ask my kids. Yeah. My kids are millennials. And they have great judgment as yeah. well. And they probably don't hold back. They don't hold back. <laughs> but, but they know their mom and they know the values I've tried to instill in them. Yeah. And, and I, I rely upon them for advice yeah. as well. Yeah. And colleagues, I can and imagine. And colleagues, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one last question, yeah. um, which is, I think one of the things that's been terrific about American medicine over the last 30 years, and I've seen it, uh, I think I was in one of the first classes at HMS where we had close mm -hmm. to 50% women. Mm -hmm. um, and now the number of women in mm -hmm. medicine has grown. Um, mm -hmm. We had a paper recently that showed that women had really terrific outcomes and better mm -hmm. outcomes than men. Yes, and I, uh, I enjoyed reading that paper. Thank, thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, not all of my male colleagues loved it, but it was uh, still a, a, an important paper, I think. Um, but in the leadership roles in academic medicine yeah. and, in, and really medicine yeah. across the country, not enough. I mean, I think we yes, can all absolutely. agree. Yeah. Um, what else could we be doing to accelerate that process to ensure yeah. that there are more women in yeah. leadership roles? Yeah. Um, because I think just waiting for yeah. some natural no. thing to happen isn't no. going to work. No. We need interventions. Yeah. There, it, there's absolutely no, no doubt about it. Yeah. And, and what are those, uh, those interventions? It's removing unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. we, we all know that as leaders, it's much easier to hire or promote somebody who looks and talks and acts like us. Yeah. That's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. So removing unconscious bias, actively encouraging women to seek mm. leadership roles. And, mm -hmm. and this is where I really credit Sheryl Sandberg and, and mm -hmm. her book Lean In for mm -hmm. encouraging women to, to pursue leadership roles, even, yeah. even though it's, it, it's tough. Creating the right environment yeah. to support women uh, in, in their leadership. And, yeah. and when I talk about women, I also mean a, a diversity, sure. uh, ethnic, it's not racial, just about exa gender. Yeah. E exactly. Um, and uh, understanding that people bring different sets of values mm. and cultural norms to a leadership position and, and providing a supportive environment a a around that. Yeah. Uh, and then I think it's, it's educating one another, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the values. Of, of how important it is to have a diverse community. You know, I, I think now to our Brigham community, and I'm sure you've experienced it here at the School of Health, Public Health, many are fearful yeah. uh, because of the executive order yeah. uh, on immigration. Yeah. Uh, and we have done our best to get out there in front proactively, yeah. articulating to our patients, their families, our students, um, our faculty, our staff, 
that we welcome anyone mm. who, who comes to us, yeah. that we benefit, we gain from a diverse uh, community. Yeah. And I, I think you just have to consistently take that message all the way up the leadership ranks. Yeah. Starting from the ground up all the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you for um, taking the time. I want to just uh, summarize a few things that I heard and then I'd love for you to mm -hmm. add on. I mean, one of the things that I think comes across so clearly from mm -hmm. um, how you talk about mm -hmm. leadership is that this is, as I said earlier, this is not about making a decision and then getting everybody no. to follow. No. That the most important stuff is done with partnership, is done collaboratively. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I think has been remarkable about your leadership has been the desire and the ability and, and the, really the courage to step mm -hmm. out of comfort mm -hmm. zones. Mm -hmm. Most cardiologists, mm -hmm. research scientists don't end up mm -hmm. doing the kinds of things yeah. you've done. Yeah. Uh, and I think that means occasionally you're gonna get it wrong. Yep. Uh, but having a group of people who can help mm -hmm. you and guide you, mm -hmm. because none of us do this alone. Yeah. Um, and then certainly not, uh, last but not least, is the mm -hmm. issue of how do we build more diversity. Yes. And that strikes me that it also goes back to those principles yeah. of thinking outside the box, yes. being collaborative. Yes. Um, any kind of other final closing thoughts yeah. on, yeah. on yeah. leadership and yeah. what well, you would advise the students yeah. in this yeah. room but yeah. are really around yeah. the globe yeah. who are watching, yeah. Yeah. Um, what should they be thinking about? I, I know many of you are very interested in, in having an impact in the world. Many of you want to be entrepreneurs and, and I find that wonderfully uh, refreshing. I, I would encourage you to think about your passion because at the end of the day, it's what's in your heart that drives you. And you use your brain, your head to temper that. But use your passion, have an impact in as positive a way uh, as you can. And character means a lot. Character, values, integrity in this world mean a lot. And, and remember that. I, I think of myself as, as a, a leadership style with two flavors to it. One is, is a servant leader. So you serve your organization, uh, you serve your patients, you serve your students, you put their needs ahead of your own. And that's a leadership style I learned when I was in the federal government. Mm -hmm. um, the other is uh, a leadership style that uh, uh, a colleague of mine who is a, an entrepreneur in the Bay Area said, Betsy, you're an incumbent CEO in a healthcare organization, but you're trying to be disruptive that can be challenging, yeah. and, and it can be. But I, I think it's the disruptions that you know that are, are the transformative events uh, that, that occur uh, as we carry our leadership forward. And then the finally I would say is you all are leaders in each in your own way. And don't wait till you're at some point in your career to say, I'm gonna start developing my leadership skills, develop them now. Well, those are very good words. Thank you for both a very sorry insightful, but also a very inspiring uh, set of uh, discussions. It's great Thank to you. see you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me/voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.